I was not expecting to have to announce that um, I have n new members on here, but I just learned that Ash uh, moved to Minneapolis. What? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. So he's no longer going to be on the commission or the policy board, which is too bad. Um, and we haven't had Pat Butler come to one of our meetings yet, which is too bad. Uh, but we're going to follow our same rules, uh, assume the presenters, uh, the presenters will assume we've all read um, the material, because everybody's so well prepared, uh, we'll always assume that. And we'll let them give their summary presentations before uh, we ask any questions. Um, and then we'll do either raise your hand or catch my attention, however, so we can try and make sure we fairly um, get everybody's thoughts in the in the queue. So any other comments on meeting procedures? Okay, great. Um, everybody have a chance to look at the minutes? Move approval. Second. Motion and a second. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. Opposed? Motion carried. Dave? Would you like to come up and give us a report? You want to introduce yourself to the group? Oh, I'm sorry. I missed. The, see, I'm on such a roll to keep us yeah. on track that I missed two things on the agenda. Thank you, Patrick. I don't believe there's anybody for public comment, is there? Not that I had noticed. And any disclosures or recusals? I think we only had that like one time, but it's always good to ask anyway. Thank you. Sorry, I apologize to the group. Now, Dave. Well, thank you for having me. Does everyone have a copy of? The summary I yes. provided. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I thought I'd start off just by um, bringing the committee up to date as to some of the internal changes. In late 2018, we had a, a number of command uh, retirements. Uh, Lieutenant Knight, who used to sit before the Pit Bike Motor Vehicle Commission, as I did uh, probably about 10 years ago, retired. And then shortly thereafter, Captain Wheeler, also part of the traffic unit, he had retired, so I and now Captain Cheney Austin are new to the unit. So there's a bit of a transition uh, that's occurring, but we're trying to get up to speed as, as quickly as possible. So um, before you is a document that sort of summarizes um, the data in relation to citations and warnings that were issued by the Madison Police Department between the period of 2016 and 2018. I hope this format's helpful. If not, we can certainly discuss what format uh, would be of use to all of you, but um, I think the numbers uh, are, are pretty clear uh, in terms of uh, showing the sorts of uh, enforcement that we've been doing. I should also add that the Madison Police Department looks at traffic safety from uh, not only an enforcement perspective, but one of education. So. I think a big part of what we do uh, will be reflected in the warning numbers. Uh, not every uh, infraction, not every traffic stop will result in actually the issuance of a citation. And we think that's important uh, to use discretion and to use it uh, judiciously. So I, uh, <clears throat> as part of this summary, included our warning data, which I think is also important because it does uh, also reflect um, as I said, the traffic safety effort that we make as part of a, uh, um, a department. So um, are there any questions about the data specifically? Um, I should point out that in 2018 we um, lost our PM test team. So for the full year we did not have a, tr a PM traffic enforcement safety team. Um, those are staffing uh, 
allocation resource decisions that were made at the department level. Um, so that is always going to have an impact on, on traffic numbers, uh, traffic citations and warnings that are issued. Use the word PM. So, excuse me. Correct. So, previously uh, we had for a number of years a uh, day shift and an afternoon shift uh, traffic enforcement safety team. And for 2018, we did not have a afternoon traffic enforcement safety team. Okay. So we currently have a um, day shift. I'll call it an AM traffic enforcement safety team comprised of five officers and one sergeant. So they do the best they can, but um, obviously in the absence of a PM unit, um, overall citations and warnings are, are going to be impacted. So the PM is gone as yes, far that's as correct. the time for yeah. the foreseeable future? Until such time that you know, resources can be re reallocated and, and added to a, um, you know, to bolster a uh, PM testing. But just to be clear, the rest of the squads are still enforcing doing all that. It's just that you don't have a test team Correct. allocated with that being their priority. Correct. Okay. So there's still an expectation of patrol officers um, uh, have tra traffic safety as part of their, their routine duties. And just to follow up, and they're on the same policy wavelength as the test squad as far as warning versus the other thing. I mean, everybody in the department shares the same Philosophy. approach. Okay. Yes. Okay. That is correct. So there's not a, a difference in no. the lack of the PM. I mean, there is that you don't have a, a, a focus thing in the PM, but the enforcement is, is enforced with the same policies and parameters then. If I understand your question, um, we as a, as a department embrace a philosophy, and this goes across all work units that do traffic safety, that it's appropriate to write citations in certain circumstances and in others. We want to allow the officers the latitude to educate and thereby issue a okay. warning. All right, and our test team can do the same thing. Um, so, it, you know, our test team though will uh, often. I see that unit as one where we understand that there's an identified issue in a particular area, so they really want to make an impact, as opposed to an officer who might be on routine patrol and, and you know, sees a, uh, a violation that occurs in front of them. So I think um, the way in which they sometimes come across the violations might be a little different, okay. uh, but that philosophy still uh, runs across the department. Thanks. Uh, I guess two questions. One is the percentage of, of the citations and warnings that are uh, done by the test unit versus other officers. Mm -hmm. Any, any? Uh, I have that data. Internally, I just didn't, I just didn't bring. It. I, rough, um, I, I don't okay. recall off the top of my head. That'd be one of the things I guess. You brand, that I'm interested in. So break down how you know that we are going to see obviously a difference, and I suspect the test units rates a lot more. Higher percentage of the tickets. Easy enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, as a recipient of a warning last night, and leaving the common council meeting, I appreciate that latitude. <laughs> <laughs> My lights were turned off <laughs> on my car. Um, but. At any rate, so we've spoken. Is it going to be you or Kat or Cheney Austin who will be working 
on this report from here on out? Myself. Yourself. Okay. So we've discussed with uh, Lieutenant Knight and then before Wheeler, um, when he was in front of us before, the desire to um, align your reporting with actual traffic safety issues as identified through crash reports and, and in conjunction with TE. So a lot of your reporting that comes out of MPD around this issue is, is basically, um, it's about personnel, how many hours were done on, you know, traffic enforcement and, and citations. But I think the value to this commission of you being in, in front of us isn't understanding that data necessarily, but how, what, what test team can do and what MPD can do to increase safety, traffic safety, right, and to really connect the information that you provide to us with known traffic safety issues. Um, so this is kind of just a general comment, but if, and, and you know, maybe a desire for MPD to deploy resources in a way that's not just, you know, an easy speed trap at Packers and Aberg or something. But um, it would be nice if we could work with you and you and traffic engineering to identify some really chronic safety issues and have you re reporting on, on that from your end, but also perhaps deploying to some of those chronic um, areas that aren't necessarily just about cars speeding on on roads. Um, so just wanted to relate, relate that to you and, and see if, you, you know, yeah. think about that. We have neighborhoods, we have uh, different groups coming to us saying, we see these issues in our neighborhood and they work with traffic engineering for traffic calming or for traffic signals or different things. And in addition to understanding the numbers, we'd like to know what you think traffic safety issues are and things that we might be able to do or traffic engineering might be able to do to help uh, make things more safe in the city. But how to go about that, I guess we'd appreciate your opinion in that sure. regard. Ken. So I think along those lines, like we're going to talk a little bit later in the meeting about how do, how do they decide where they're going to put up a traffic signal or how do they decide where they're going to put up speed bumps. So without you giving away the magic formula for how you decide where you're going to deploy, but maybe in a future meeting saying, okay, here's, here's how much of it is data-driven, here's how much of it is intuitive. If we decide we're going to set up somebody on across the street from the school on Atwood or something like that, here's how we come to that decision as far as this is our deployment thing. It would just be interesting for us to know, I think. But don't give away the formula because otherwise everybody will know when it's going down. Well, in actuality, there, there is no secret to uh, truth known. Um, and the last uh, time I was in the unit, I would announce where we were going to be at. Um, and, and, and to be fully transparent because our goal was, in fact, to get folks to obey traffic right. laws. And we still had uh, plenty of uh, business to keep us yeah. Uh, to keep us uh, focused on on the uh, concern or the complaint that was issued, right. you know. So yeah, there there really is no secret, but I think it is valid to uh, kind of look at cause and effect, right? And 
are we applying resources in a manner that um, deliver uh, expected outcomes. So I'd be happy to try to put something together to try to start that conversation with, with this committee. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. Yeah, those are, I want to say those are great comments from the commission. Uh, yeah, I think uh, trap engineering and uh, the test team should work close together on uh, some of those issues. I, think I agree the goal is to improve safety, not the number of citations uh, being issued. Um, we have been frequently forwarding paramedic locations to the test team, asking for more enforcement. We'll continue to do that. And we can also sit down to you know, go through some, uh, some intersections or segments of roadways. We have uh, issues, uh, safety issues, not just uh, um, you know, people tend to speed but uh, may, may not cause a lot of harm. So, so we, uh, we should sit down and uh, talk about that. So right now we are working through uh, our uh, last traffic safety report, crash report, and identify the, the high impact, uh, high crash areas, mm -hmm. trying to come up with uh, new solutions to address those. So we'll keep you uh, posted on that. Thank you. So we'll definitely help you know, for, for enforcement. I think it's uh, for, for us to be effective, we have to do three things, right? I do engineering, yeah. I do education, we do enforcement. So, yeah, let's be uh, basic. I, I second what mm. said, because mm. of the educational component, if mm. traffic engineering has things out there that are just not being, they see things that aren't being mm. driven properly, or mm. whether it's pedestrians or bicyclists or motor vehicles, doesn't matter, we have to be on the same page with, with enforcement to get that education, because that's the most important part, is because you can't have issue enough tickets. We all know that. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not. So um, I do have one question as far as the the uh, the funding, the grant. What percentage of the time or or whatever of the test unit is driven by by grants, by safety grants from bots or from others? And I and I'd have to look at the data, but a small percentage. So the way we um, typically construct uh, the grant assignments, um, if I um, assign six officers, um, there may be one at a minimum that's going to be a test officer. And one of the reasons oh. we do that is uh, to e be efficient. Okay. Test officers do this sort of work day in and day out. So they know how to run, for instance, the speed waves. Yeah. where um, we deploy in a specific area and we do speed enforcement. And they're very good at that. So uh, we want to make sure that uh, we're good bastions of uh, the, uh, the tax dollar and the overtime dollars that we're getting. Yeah. And, um, and so to that end, we make sure that we have somebody running it that is very familiar with running okay. the service of operations. So although we do have test officers that are available and do participate in the uh, grant overtime initiatives, I would not, uh, it's, it's a very small percentage that actually so contribute. mostly for overtime or correct. officers who are doing it on as far as overtime. That is correct. And that's okay. part of uh, grants that we receive um, collaboratively with the county through the uh, state. Yes, we do. And we do work with this, the county. Uh, to decide where we actually apply uh, those grant um, and make applications. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. We, we very much appreciate the data, but we we really want to understand what we can do with the data to help make things more safe in the city, and certainly would value your feedback there. 
and I, I look forward to the opportunity to, to work with this committee. And you know, if I'm not providing what you need, I will I will try to uh, uh, do so. So we'll I'll, uh, take the uh, feedback I got from this meeting and uh, try to put together something that might be more useful. And we'll build we'll, we'll build on that yeah. in future meetings if that sounds reasonable. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. Thank you. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks. Do you need a, a motion? Yes, we need to uh, accept. accept the report. Yes. We have a motion from Bill. Second from Kara. Any discussion? All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. Motion carried. Thank you, Dave. Okay. Next, we have the traffic signal and priority list. Jerry? All right. I understand there's an updated report that you handed out? Yes. Okay. Um, you could maybe tell us what's updated on it as you go? Absolutely. Great, thanks. Um, my name is Jerry Shippen with Traffic Engineering. I'm going to um, present the uh, summary of staff recommendations. Um, and yes, as Ann mentioned, there was a recent change to the list. The change updates a intersection that was actually studied in 2017 and um, kind of slotted in the wrong order, and we went back and corrected that, which caused the other uh, intersections below that to shift down in ranking. Not down as far as our recommendations, but just down in, as far as the order as they're um, presented. So if you notice at the top, number two, Carolyn Gorham, <clears throat> was actually taken from the uh, previously at the bottom of page three, which was it met warrant, but we were not recommending signal. And that 2017 was actually studied, and it fell back below meeting warrant. So we were putting in its correct spot, and it um, made a few of the other rankings. Everything below number two fall down one. So nothing in terms of our recommendations of change. It's just kind of a, a correcting an, an old error. Okay. Um, so with that, uh, we met in December and discussed uh, further studies of a few intersections. And of those intersections, we, we've taken a look at, we've looked at Commerce and Watts, South Gammon, New Washburn, McKenna, Packers Avenue, Schlimgen, Prairie Road, Raymond Road. And uh, one intersection that actually wasn't discussed was South Blount Street and Williamson. And this is an intersection that was um, previously approved by um, the Ped Bike Motor Vehicle Commission, uh, Common Council, and Board of Public Works as part of a 2018 strand report for the uh, John Nolan Blair Williamson uh, Wilson intersection. And their recommendation was to uh, direct the bike path down Williamson Street and put a diagonal bike path at Blount and Williamson and then uh, signalize that with a signalized uh, diagonal crossing. So that's added on this, this uh, list to um, stay consistent with presenting that to this commission and getting approval here. So of those intersections, uh, traffic engineering recommends um, installing a traffic signal at the following, Commerce Drive, Watts Road, Prairie Road, Raymond Road, and South Mount Street and Williamson Street. And if you guys have any questions, we're here to answer. 
have a question about the Blount and Williamson that is actually about the current signal just probably a few feet away at Jennifer and Williamson and how that would really work or make sense <coughs> mm -hmm. from a traffic engineering point of view. Like, would they be synced or what? I see. Yeah. Hi, Brian. As part of the Strand report, they actually did do a. Pull up a chair, Brian. Um, as part of the Strand report, they actually did do a uh, an analysis, uh, uh, what's called a synchro analysis, as well as uh, a simulation analysis, to show that uh, the two signals will work together. They will be coordinated, and um, you know, we want to keep the one that's at the Jennifer Street because it is very useful for our bus operation. Um, I was a little bit, uh, myself, a little bit dubious about whether or not it would work, but the, the modeling definitely showed that, uh, definitely convinced us that it, it is a good recommendation. So how could it work in both ways? I'm just picturing, like, cars stuck in between the Blount um, and Jennifer one way or the other. The, it's a little bit difficult to explain, um, but the, it, because they're so close together, it's going to help us uh, help work versus if they were a bit further apart. If they were more, um, you know, more feet apart than what they are right now, it, it would be a lot more difficult to make that work. We're going to have it such that when the buses come up, the buses will be able to um, either make it, uh, you know, come up and most likely have to stop, but it won't be for very long. And then as soon as they get the green, they'll be able to go at the same time as what the Williamson Street would be going. So it, it won't be stopping anything. We're still going to only allow buses to um, enter at the Jennifer intersection like it is today. So we don't expect, you know, very much uh, traffic at all to come from it. Does that help explain? Maybe I'm trying to picture the opposite, the like the opposite buses that, that are going off out. Jennifer onto, um, that, that, onto Williamson. Typically, we should only have like one bus at a time that's going to come off. So when it when it makes its turn off of Jennifer onto Williamson Street, you know, if it has to stop at a red light at the new Blount Street intersection, um, both the Blount and Williamson Street intersections. Um, we'll get a green light for Williamson Street at the same time, so they both be able to to go. And um, the bu the bus that would have been caught in that period um, would not be um, would not be hindering the traffic coming from behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Trying to run the tapes in my brain. <laughs> Carl. Jen, to follow up the picture which you just said, Brad. So the, the bike paths that will be coming from the north side of Williamson Street, or it depends which direction you're heading, we're coming and crossing at that intersection. <clears throat> that will be between the two signals. No, um, the diagonal crossing will be right at the Blount um, Street intersection, and it'll be crossing, you know, to or from, we should say, the the south um, the southwest corner to the northeast corner. Um, we're going to, with um, with the new projects that are going to be happening, there's going to be um, a nice, I'm not sure if you call it a cycle track, but it's going to be uh, an off-road bicycle. Um, both, we're going to have separate bicycle and pedestrian 
um, way leading from the Blair John Nolan Wilson intersection along Williamson Street on the south side. It, that, that'll bring it right up to the corner of Blount Street. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to be having a, um, a traffic signal phase that's going to be just for the bikes to cross that diagonal crossing. We have about the same type of a thing right now today at the Atwood and Dunning intersection. Uh, we also have one at the, um, at the Cottage Grove and Dempsey intersection. Does that answer? It helps clarify. Okay. Love to do a graphic later. I probably did once, but. Just so I understand, is this intended to take bike traffic crossing away from Blair? And Correct. One of the biggest complaints we've had for many years at that intersection is the bicycle crossing of Williamson Street mm -hmm. at the intersection. Um, you know, they've had to make one crossing across the, the right turn lane to an island, and then they've typically, depending upon when they arrive, have to wait in that island to make a second crossing. And the same thing coming the other way mm -hmm. across the intersection. This will facilitate the uh, bike traffic to make um, an easier transition to get to the Capital City Trail on Blount <coughs> rather than cross, when they can still cross at Williamson Street mm -hmm. and make the connection to the Capital City Trail. This just gives uh, what we consider to be a more attractive alternative. And if I might add, I've been in that intersection over and over every month for at least the last 20 years. And to complicate the matter for bicycles or wheelchairs, there are also railroad tracks to go through. Mm -hmm. And yes. for mm -hmm. anything with the wheels, it can fall in. The, yeah. Everything's at a diagonal. Traffic is coming from every single direction. No matter what we change, it can only be better. We hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions for Jerry? Other comments or questions? Move approval. Okay, there's a motion. I'll second. And a second? Further discussion? All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carried. Thank you. And just for clarification, sure. as an alternate, given the number of people that are here, I do get to you do. vote and vote. Mm -hmm. vote and yes, you do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, next on the agenda is key transportation topics. Tom, we have you on every meeting, just in case you want to say something to us. <laughs> Can you go there? Well, we we love to hear whatever you have to say. So, I'll be relatively brief. Um, one of the objectives in the 2013 to 2017 transit development plan was to develop transit service to outlying communities or partner communities. It's also in the Madison Area Transportation Planning Board recommendations that we should, you know, expand metro service to um, other communities because, um, how do I want to say this? A person lives someplace and they work different places, right? And and they just care about the trip. They don't care about where where they are and where their job is. They care about the trip. And so we should have one transit system that is able to take care of that trip. And so Sun Prairie has been uh, investigating um, 
they tried a shared ride taxi service with, I think, limited success. And right now they would like to engage this, uh, and contract with the city for transit service. So not this commission meeting, but next commission meeting you'll be, um, I, I believe there'll be something that was introduced into council that's probably referred here for um, buying equipment. All right, for that. So, um, and I just didn't want you guys to be surprised. <laughs> and so this is a, just a very temporary or a tentative routing of what that route will look like. Uh, I think, Chuck, I think we're excited about this. You know, it's part of... We're, I can confirm that. Are, are we excited, Chuck? Yeah. So, uh, and this is all... It's not like this is coming out of the blue. This is kind of part of a long-range plan to develop a, a transit system that uh, carries more riders and takes more traffic off East Washington Avenue, takes uh, fewer spaces in our parking ramps and the like. And so I uh, think it will be successful. The way we're going to accommodate this is that every year Metro sells about 15 buses. And um, this year I think we're going to sell about 12 buses, right? Yeah. So we'll retain a couple, few more to allow us to expand the service. So this will be part of the service changes that we would do effective in August. Is that right, Chuck? Yes. The only thing I wanted to add, we were initially thinking that with the MMSD Dodger or middle school Dodger service phase out, that there would be three buses the first year. But in their first year, we won't save any buses out of our peak. So we need to increase our total number of buses from 215 to 218, our peak hour from 182 to 185, and therefore we need the equipment that Tom talked about. So would it be fair to describe this as like subcontracting kind of? Like you would be subcontracting service to some ferry, and that's a way in which we're achieving more of a regional transit service? I would describe it just as the way we do service to Middleton, Verona, Fitchburg, and our other partners. Uh, I view it as a partnership more than a subcontract okay. because they're contributing to capital. They're, uh, there's a regional member now on the Transportation Policy Board, mm -hmm. and so it's, it goes beyond being a, a, a subcontractor. But, yes, there is that similarity. Mm -hmm. So we'll be introducing this and asking for a public hearing, and then we'll have a public hearing on the service changes, and then at the meeting after that, we'll we'll vote on those changes. So this is an introduction. This right now is just uh, what you'll see perhaps at the next meeting. will just be uh, authority to add some capital funds, okay. purchase AVL, uh, just some some things that require advanced lead time. So it will be relatively small. I think $70,000 was something to that effect. Uh, eventually, there'll be a, a longer discussion, but this is more, and I thought, I thought you shouldn't be surprised. So. Great. Any other questions for Tom? Okay. I think hey. we are excited, and I hear uh, Tom Perry was more excited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Okay, thank you, Tom. All right, any other engineering department referrals? We don't have any this time. Okay. Uh, we have uh, we had asked Ken, I believe you asked about a presentation on extending the useful life of our parking structures and how um, we might be doing that. Uh, so, Bill. <laughs> so, 
tactile example. Rebar. Rebar. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go to the convention where you're handing out samples. Bill Putnam, City of Madison, Parking Utility Engineer, and. Uh, just talk a little bit about some of the techniques that we use to extend the life of our uh, parking structures. Uh, it's a big investment, um, a lot of capital and uh, tied up in these uh, assets that we've got, um, and they're also a, a very large part of, of our operation. Uh, so um, there's a number of things that go into how long a, a parking structure lasts. Um, from the design of it, uh, how it's constructed, the quality of construction, uh, its use, um, how many vehicles use it, uh, how many of those vehicles drop a lot of snow with salt uh, laden in the snow, um, and then just general weathering, um, where a garage is sited, um, how much um, sun, uh, temperature variations, uh, it'll see um, affects its its um, durability, and then uh, another big uh, item is the maintenance uh, that we do and repairs that we do, and how proactive we are in in repairing those structures. Uh, some of our structures are, are quite uh, old, if you will. Um, just have a list of the uh, build dates of of our garages, um, everywhere from Government East over 60 years ago um, to South Livingston Street, which opened at the end of last year, and Judge Doyle, which is currently under construction. Um, often people will use uh, like a 40 or 45 year timeline for the life of a garage. Um, we expect to get more than that out of ours and are a little bit more proactive in maintenance uh, and repairs as well as uh, putting more money up front into the construction um, of them to in increase their durability. Um, so talking sort of about the mechanism of uh, what goes into a parking garage and, and its deterioration, um, for one thing, just the sun, um, the UV rays will uh, cause uh, sealers, sealing materials at joints uh, to fail. Uh, our expansion joints that we have between different members of uh, the garage uh, structure uh, and traffic coatings that we put over the decks to um, protect the, the concrete beneath. Um, a big thing for us in this climate is uh, salts uh, from vehicles um, that come off the vehicles in the winter and then sit on the concrete and penetrate into the concrete. Uh, once that salt chloride uh, reaches the reinforcing uh, that's in the concrete, um, it uh, accelerates the uh, corrosion of that steel. Um, the corrosion products uh, expand, um, which then uh, breaks the uh, concrete um, 
because of that expansion. It, concrete is not good in, in uh, tensile um, condition. Um, once that happens, that provides more avenues for uh, water and yet more uh, chlorides to get into the concrete. And with our winter uh, freeze-thaw cycles, um, the, the damage uh, just continues to accelerate. Um, we also have some garages that have uh, post-tensioned uh, tendons uh, where um, there are actual uh, steel tendons that are stretched um, after the garage is constructed that place the concrete into uh, compression. And that um, is really good in a lot of ways, but uh, if those uh, start to corrode, that can lead to some, some severe uh, uh, deterioration uh, fairly quickly. Um, so some of the things we do to, uh, in terms of our maintenance is we do a, a garage deck wash down twice per year, um, especially in the spring that helps uh, wash the chlorides off of the decks that have been uh, brought to the, to the decks from uh, cars over the winter. Um, many of our decks have uh, at least partial uh, membranes, which is a coating over, over the top of the concrete um, to prevent water from infiltrating into the concrete, and we do repairs on those. Um, where we don't have membranes, we'll put a penetrating sealer that um, uh, goes into the concrete and causes the water to beat up on top and not go in as much. Uh, and then just uh, replacing caulking, expansion joints, and uh, we've got an annual inspection of all the decks um, and do uh, repairs based on that where we found um, delaminations in the concrete um, and that sort of thing, as well as expansion joints or other uh, failures. Uh, just some photos of some of the, the repair work that's, being, that's done fairly routinely. Um, you know, this is an expansion joint replacement at Capitol Square North. Um, that's a detail of what it looks like. Uh, it's a big uh, rubber, if you will, um, compressed um, joint that hopefully will keep water from uh, going through the deck um, to the next level. Uh, they're a, a maintenance item and they, they just wear out um, in less time than we'd like them to, but it's, it's part of part and parcel of these structures. Um, this is an example of where we had a tendon uh, fail, um, along with a lot of uh, fairly than severe deterioration of the concrete. Uh, so you can see there's, there's a lot of uh, daylight uh, seen through the, the stack here. Um, and that's a fairly complex uh, and specialized repair. Uh, only a few contractors can do it. Um, where they actually splice in new tendon, restretch it. Um, Can I ask just a quick, that picture before, was that as you found it, or was that after you did some further deconstruction to repair it? Right. That, that was after um, our inspection noticed, uh, noted a delamination in the concrete, and then once the contractor started opening up with jackhammers, um, they found more and more deterioration um, until... Uh, you know, we, we got to a very large hole. So in a way, what that shows is that even though we see cement on the top, it's really worthless. 
I mean, in a way, it looks more like the picture as far as real safety than than it did before that. Right. The structural integrity is is comparable. More like that than it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And there were cars parking over it. You know, before is you know there is a factor of safety built in to the designs. Oh yeah. Um, we don't want to get to that point. I understand. Um, and then uh, here's a repair at Government East Garage, which is uh, a mild steel reinforced garage. And you can see it's a pretty substantial area of concrete that's been removed. Um, some full depth. There's a plywood uh, on the bottom side uh, to hold up the new concrete as it's poured. But, um, you know, we find uh, in, this, in our older facilities that uh, some ex more extensive repairs tend to be needed. And this was partly due at Government East. So it's so extensive in that um, several years before this, we thought we were going to be taking down Government East. Mm -hmm. And so we, we deferred maintenance, um, figuring it doesn't make sense to put money into a garage. We're just going to tear down. But then when it became clear that we weren't ready to close Government East, um, we had to go in and then, uh, if you will, place some catch-up um, on, the, on the, the maintenance and repairs. Um, so that's uh, kind of on the, the repair and maintenance side. Um, in terms of new uh, construction, um, the sample of epoxy-coated rebar uh, is one of the things in our, our toolbox, if you will, that we use to extend the life of a garage because that epoxy coating um, uh, protects the rebar from some of those salts and slows down the, the corrosion um, that occurs once the salts get into the concrete. Um, the new uh, post-tensioning uh, tendons are now encased in plastic, whereas in years past they would be wrapped in a fiber and uh, filled with grease, and that fiber tube uh, just breaks down and isn't nearly as durable as, as the, the plastic sheathing. Um, the concrete itself is different that we use now, um, where we've got uh, crystalline waterproofing admixture, and that actually will help self-seal small cracks in the concrete. Um, air and training. Um, the concrete helps with free thaw cycles, uh, and then slag and fly ash, um, again, decrease the permeability of the concrete and increase its wear resistance. Um, you know, people may not realize it, but concrete is porous, um, so it, it soaks up moisture, um, and the less we can, the more we can reduce that from happening, the better off we are. And then also there can be a corrosion inhibitor, which then also makes it less aggressive towards the, the steel that's in, in the case in the concrete. Um, here's uh, South Livingston Street Garage under construction. You can see a lot of the epoxy-coated uh, rebar. Um, in this next photo, um, it's kind of hard to point out the, the tendon because um, it's also green, but it's, it's, it's going to be... Uh, stretched or stressed after the concrete is poured. Um, you know, we've got plastic chairs that hold the rebar in, in place that aren't susceptible to corrosion. Um, and then all the concrete uh, admixtures that go into it uh, really help to make for a, a much more durable uh, structure. Um, 
other things I, I thought I'd just kind of showcase uh, the Soft Livingston Street Garage, um, some of the things we've done there, um, which aren't necessarily just durability specifically, but um, ease of maintenance. Uh, we use more stainless steel or galvanized uh, hardware uh, rather than painted steel. Um, we did a very large on-site uh, water retention tank um, to address some of the stormwater discharge. Um, permeable pavers uh, in some of the area, um, provision for future solar panels um, is built into the design. Uh, MGE has indicated an interest in at some point possibly putting solar panels on, on the garage. Um, that was part of the deal worked out because the land was purchased from MGE um, and you know they wanted to be able to kind of showcase some of the, their technology. Uh, and then we've got a commercial building on the north side of the garage um, as part of the project that helps uh, kind of buffer the, the, the parking um, from the, the street level and kind of activate the street and make the site more a destination, a place to go to rather than um, just a place to park your car when you're going somewhere else. Um, also mentioned that it's an open structure, so we don't need to have any active ventilation um, you know, some of our garages you know, where we've got basements, we've got to have uh, fans, and that takes electricity, you know, which is uh, energy use. Uh, here's the lobby of, of the South Livingston Street Garage, and you can see the stainless rail, steel railings, um, very low maintenance, and, uh, you know, uh, an attractive uh, railing. Um, you know, it's a real challenge for us at some of our other facilities where we've got just mild steel painted railings to keep them looking nice. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, media blasting to clean them, to repaint them, and then five to ten years later we're doing it all over again, whereas this is pretty much maintenance-free for, you know, 70 years, hopefully. Uh, here's a picture of the, the stormwater tank um, under construction. It's a, it's a pretty sizable area. Um, so it, it should actually, you know, measurably kind of reduce that uh, surcharge of, of water during a, a rain event going into the storm system. And uh, this area of town, uh, the storm sewer is, is very close to the lake level already, so we don't have much extra capacity to handle more storm water. Um, you know, the site before had been pretty much impermeable. You know, MGN used it for a a storage lot uh, and it's really hard compacted gravel and concrete. So if anything, we hope that we've improved the situation uh, for stormwater somewhat versus the previous condition. And then uh, the uh, screening on the garage uh, is aluminum, uh, which again should require very little maintenance and provide uh, a long life. Um, well, adding to the kind of the aesthetics of, of, of the facility. So that's uh, kind of in a in a nutshell what uh, some of the things we've we've we do routinely to extend the life of our structures and some of the design work that we've done um, to uh, help our new structures last considerably longer and. You know, I will say, like, Government East um, was built in 58, but by the early 80s, we had to completely remove one of the decks and replace it um, because it had gotten so deteriorated. 
other facilities like Overture Center Garage is now much older than that and has needed none of that type of expensive repair. So this makes a big difference in terms of how long these structures last and how much it costs to maintain them uh, over their life. What did you say the frequency of the safety inspection is a year? Annually. Right. And is it a specialty company that does this? Yes, we uh, hire a engineering consulting firm um, on a three-year contract um, to do annual inspections and uh, plans and specs and construction administration and inspection. Um, but it's, you know, it's a fairly unique, um, you know, um, expertise that's needed. Um, you know, it's like bridge decks, you know, bridge decks and parking garages have a lot of similarities and they don't extend to a lot of other things. You, you can build a, a building has got a lot fewer structural issues than a parking garage because it's just not exposed to the salt. So the, is the 12 month, uh, is that standard? Is that the national standard for inspections or where are we compared to what? Uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any real standards. Um, from what we hear from the consultant that we've had, uh, very few other agencies or private firms are as aggressive or proactive. Okay. Um, so we're probably at least equal to or better than what the average oh, yes. might be. Okay. That's yeah. what I wanted to know. Yeah. Other comments? Jessica? Um, I had a question, too, with – so your uh, – Second slide talks about how kind of a rule of thumb is 60 years for older garages and 70 for newer garages. What is new? Would, it sounds like maybe some of these that were built in the 80s would be considered the construction techniques of newer garages. Right. The the ones in the 80s, which would be like Overture and State Street Campus Francis, um, were built with much newer kind of design philosophy and uh, construction techniques, mainly that they're post-tension structures. Um and, you know, we do expect that longer life out of them. You know, you can make any anything last indefinitely if you're willing to kind of replace it piece by piece. But there comes a point where financially it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then design-wise, it may be really outdated. Um, you know, I think, you know, the aesthetic importance and uh, the importance of street frontage in the downtown being active, um, you know, is different now than it was in 1958. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it gets to a point like with Government East where we're putting a lot of money into it, um, and it's really time to replace it, which is what's happening with the Judge Doyle project. Uh, Bill, was the, uh, Livingston the first parking garage that used epoxy coating? Rebar, or when did you start using for original construction? I noticed well, I, on some yeah. of the repair jobs you used. And our repair, our repairs, we, we do pretty much as a matter of course. Um, and when we're but like was overture back in '82, was that? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. That was before my time. But it, it over. Actually, really started to take take off. 
Yeah, Overture, we've, it, it's been at very little maintenance needs. We've had expansion joints um, and a little bit of spalling, but not much at all. We're just going to start putting a membrane on it now because, um, you know, the, over time the, the salts do penetrate into the concrete, and at some point it, it, it's cost-effective to do the membrane. Um, but it's it's not a new structure by any means. Pretty good. Thirty seven years. Just the same construction, or? Uh, yeah, the the first three levels on Francis are um, there was an addition put on um, above it, which is a precast, um, which is good in some ways and not good in other ways um, because it has a, a kind of a T um, section. Um, in the precast, so they put all all these sort of tees with the, the flat top of the tee being the, the deck surface um, on, and then we've got a lot of joints between those tees, which we have to maintain and which can allow water infiltration. So Francis is kind of a hybrid, as is State Street Capital, um, which had a pretty major expansion in 1995, um, though the expansion on State Street Capital was a post-tension uh, structure. Um, we've got an old garage sitting underneath the new portion of State Street Capital. Um, Very helpful. This is exactly what we were looking for. Sounds good. Thanks, Bill. Okay. Next, uh, Chuck and Nancy, paratransit service update, boundary discussion. Maybe while uh, Nancy is setting up the slides to go through, I'll just go through a background, which probably all of you know, but just as a refresher. Back in 2017, before family care changes, the Department of Civil Rights and their review committee, Disability Rights Commission Committee, asked us to look at changing our paratransit boundary map. The current map is uh, going to be described in greater detail by Nancy. We asked them, uh, you may recall Norm Davis, uh, the department head for civil rights came and uh, understood that we were in the middle of a, a major change with family care. We asked if we could please wait. And so we're at that point now. We presented to them uh, uh, last month, and Nancy's going to go through what we presented to them. We were very clear with them. As if there's a proposed change in policy, it would go to the Transportation Planning and Policy Board. But we thought we'd give you a quick update on what we showed to them. Nancy. Sure. Uh, we just offered a snapshot of where we were at this point in time now that uh, family care has been implemented. So we went over a little bit of ridership, the boundary map, and uh, they had specifically asked about um, service boundary compliance. So we went over that as well. And so I'll go through this real quickly. Um, I wanted to point out um, what we've done in terms of ridership over time, and this is uh, 2013 through 2017. So uh, you can see the trend was a steady increase in ridership. And then, lo and behold, we come to 2018. And what I put 
together here is a comparison of 2017 to 2018 month by month and the implementation dates for family care they transitioned beginning in February so so each month February March and April um, a, a group of individuals were transitioned from the Dane County administered program to the family care family care partnership or the iris program so that's where you start to see the drop in ridership so by may 1st everybody who was um, eligible for those long-term care services um, made that transition who were already in the program who had previously been getting services they made the transition and so um, that was completed in may and then we continued to see a bit of a decline in ridership uh, as we continued through the year. Uh, normally, um, the high ridership months are March followed by October. So there's always a little bit of a reduction in ridership during the summer, and it pops back up again in October. But you can see here, when we get to the bottom line, we had uh, over a 47% 40 reduction in ridership. So quite a stunning um, change. And uh, as much as we work to prepare for it, you never quite know and you're nervous and, and as we were, I think so. But I think we managed it fairly well. And um, so that's, that's where we ended the year. Um, and then uh, I put the boundary map in here. This is the boundary map as it exists uh, right now, and, and we haven't made changes to the boundary since August of 2017. And the area that is in green is considered our core service area. And through the span of our service, um, you pretty much can um, – you can get paratransit service. In the areas that are colored, like the, there's a blue and a yellow and a purple area, those, um, the hours of the span of service might shrink a little bit and it's, it shrinks or expands in relation to the fixed route service that it's offered. And it gets a little complicated, and um, I don't really want to get into the details, but this is what it is right now. The white areas on the map are um, still City of Madison, if I'm reading that correctly. But it's just all of the colored areas have, have some level of paratransit service. Um, and then we did, uh, we were asked to look at the number of service area complaints that we get, paratransit service area complaints, and they're actually at the bottom of the chart, um, and you can see the numbers over time, uh, very, very low numbers. And when we compare it to the ridership, it's really a small fraction. And one of the things we, we needed to clarify when we met with um, the Disability Rights Commission is they were a little um, almost befuddled by these numbers. And, I, well, 
these are the numbers that are reported through our official complaint or feedback system. It, we take um, all compliments, complaints, and suggestions, and this is just a representation of those complaints that were specific to the issue of a paratransit service area boundary. Um, there, they may be hearing of other issues, but um, I, I don't, you know, these are the ones that make their way through to Metro. And uh, I, I don't know, you know, I can't explain precisely why the, um, we have, uh, let's see, 2015, there was uh, one complaint, um, 2016, another one complaint, and then 2017 were six. And I wonder whether or not that might have been a reaction to any proposed changes that we were making overall for preparing for family care. It might have led to a spike. I don't know. I have no, no real um, information on what the reason for that spike was. But then it dropped a little bit um, last year. So, and then... And then um, we just wanted to point out that uh, we do uh, uh, coordinate with Dane County and on some services, and we'll get into that later. But these are some of the other services, transportation services that are offered by Dane County. And the items that are asterisk really um, also have a service availability within our area. And I think I might have made one mistake here. And the um, just above veterans transportation, that retired and senior volunteer driver escort program, there are also services available through Dane County here in in Madison. So that was really the extent of the material we went over with um, Disability Rights Commission. And and then I think you talked about the structural change differences. Right. Since they were making the request during the time of moving from seven committees to two, we wanted them to understand how we would be discussing this with you and with the policy board. Happy to answer any questions. The next steps will be we'll find out if they formally ask for a policy change, and if they do, we'll keep you updated, and the decision will go through the policy board. So have they received a lot of have they received complaints that you have not received? Are you just the numbers are different, but they're not extremely high. I mean, yeah. we're talking about numbers in the single digits or tens, not mm -hmm. in the hundreds or right. Right. anything like that. Yeah. I, I didn't recall that they were saying, "Oh, but we were overwhelmed." Mm -hmm. Like that, I didn't hear that. Yeah, because yeah. I would have expected that that you know TPC would have heard about it if there were you know lots of requests for additional service that we couldn't handle. Other comments or questions? Carl, Rebecca, and then Carl. Oh, do you mind if Carl goes first, Rebecca? No, I don't. There we go. Thanks, Chuck. Has the reduction in uh, paratransit services experienced throughout 2018 had an impact on driver or other staffing? Uh, Positions. 
Did it have an impact? Impact on, on numbers of drivers and other well, at Metro. Well, part of um, part of our managing the the change with family care. Of course, we were very concerned about the loss of revenue, so we we worked very closely with family care agencies or with with any agency that was providing the new services um, to get family um, to get agency fares. But we also did make some adjustments in our own operation, and that is no longer having directly operated service. So now all of the service as of August, early August, is now contracted service. I don't know if that answers. And the other question, if I can continue. The contractors that Metro used to have for providing paratransit services, now that we offer less business or less lucrative or less attractive, and they're getting business from the family care supported agencies that now have the riders and the clients that used to go through Dane County, has that altered our relationship with those providers in terms of response we get? Well, our, our, our contract obligation or their contract yeah. obligation to us is the same. Uh, so they, they do still have to meet our service standards and, and, you know, it's the same review that I've done prior to family care coming in in terms of, um, are, is their performance meeting the standards yeah. or, or is it failing and therefore they have, um, a financial penalty, so to speak. So that hasn't changed. They, they, there still is, I, I would say generally, there still is difficulty in um, getting drivers. That has been a challenge all through this. I mean, that, that's no different. But um, in terms of their meeting our contract, they are still meeting our obligations. So just on, on that topic, it's kind of stunning to me that we were going on the assumption that we would lose about 50% of mm -hmm. our fares in, in that subcommittee and that we, I mean, that's pretty much it. And that it was actually going to be a bad situation if we didn't lose that much because of the change of the payment structure. But it seems like, I mean, I've heard anecdotally that we've, performed better than expected in terms of getting agency fares and yes. maybe at, at some point I'd like to see if you've done I don't know if you've done an analysis of that um, but maybe at some point in the future bringing us back mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. analysis because we were working sure. on a bunch of different scenarios and this sure. is kind of a hybrid of you know yeah. one it matched our assumptions in ridership, but our revenue assumptions were, were performing better than we thought. Yeah, and I can answer it real quickly right now, but, yes, I, I hear what you're saying about, about coming back at another time. Um, generally speaking, in preparing for family care, our focus was on the family care side of it, m much less so than the iris side of it, which is a subset. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds. But um, what happened in actuality is um, 
we work very closely with all of the agencies to make that transition period go as smoothly as possible. And um, the priority uh, that the state had had put on the agencies that they had contracted with to provide these services were told transportation is your number one priority. Of course, it's not the only activity mm -hmm. going on, but it was a priority. So we worked very closely with them. But um, very quickly after individuals were transitioned um, on the family care side of it, they just as quickly took those their members, when you're a mm -hmm. family care member versus an IRIS participant, it's a little different, mm -hmm. um, but the family care side, they very quickly took uh, people off of our Metro Paratransit service and put them into uh, different other private transportation providers. providers yeah. that they had contracted with. Mm -hmm. So they moved them off quickly. What has remained with it, us are those individuals who are in the IRIS program who, who pretty much direct their own services and they pay market rate. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we've been able to um, retain that revenue. Mm -hmm. And we did get during those negotiations um, early on, we did get word from the state that it was appropriate that uh, an agency fare would apply for these rides mm -hmm. that are funded through this long-term care program. So we've been pretty successful with that, yeah. And then on the boundary issue, um, just one thing sticks out to me, and that is the blue area in Route 26, mm -hmm. um, which is basically an employment route, but there is, you know, a new hospital and clinics there. So I wonder, that's, in my mind, is flagged as uh, a location that people might travel to, might need to travel to um, on a more regular basis than just the times that those routes are in operation. Okay, so I heard, even though we've seen bits and pieces of the financial impact, in the quarterly reports that you've given us that we'd like to see sort of a, a single analysis, sort of summarizing back what we've seen over the course of the, you know, time uh, during that transition. So at some point, if you want to um, either incorporate that in a monthly report or bring it as a separate, I'll leave that up to you. And the first one, would you want to be for calendar year 2018, like a summary of the year? Or do, would you like more data, part of 2019, since this went into effect in February and March of last year? I mean, we can do it either way. What's your preference? I think you're looking for what was projected in 2018 right. and what happened in 2018. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So projected 2018 versus actual 2018. Does that work? Yep. Okay. Other comments or questions? Sorry, Ken. So uh, – my understanding is is a, um, a condition of us receiving federal funding for both capital and, and uh, ongoing um, services 
we have to meet certain federal standards as far as coverage, and those standards include both area covered and frequencies and rates and things like that. Do we self-audit and self-certify on that, or do we have an external person come in every once in a while to say, yeah, we looked at your maps and we compared them to your fixed route, and we looked at your revenue or your your fares. How do we do that to make sure that we meet or exceed um, those coverage requirements? Well, we are subject to reviews by the Federal Transit Administration, and their process of a triennial review, so every three years they come in, and they cover a broad array of topics. And ADA is a subject area that okay. they cover. And then they also have specialty reviews, which might focus on a particular area, like a procurement review or an ADA review. So we do get those. Um, we look forward to those every, and we have one coming this year, a triennial review. Do you really look forward to them? <laughs> we prepare for them. Okay. So possibly when you get the next one, I don't think we need to, to go back, but it might be something to share with the commission as far as the ADA aspect of mm-hmm. your next triennial review, because I think it might be helpful for us us to know how we come out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not just physical area that we cover, but other things as well. And the reason I'm going there is it'd be nice to have the review from the past, but the past is with mm-hmm. ridership twice right. as high as it is today and all that. So I'd sort of like to see what they have to say now. Let me just add, doesn't, um, we have audited financial statements. So during your audit process, don't they go over Compliance with various programs to some degree. That's more financial. Yeah. Financial. Yeah, that's more annual review. It's more CPA more policy. Yeah. So they wouldn't do anything with regard to this. Right. Okay. So uh, results of the triannual review. Uh, is it F- the ADA result? Okay. And when the reviewers come in, we will call them auditors, and they will politely say, we're not auditors, we're reviewers. Oh, they don't call themselves auditors? But, but the consequence is one of their auditors. points, they encourage us to ask questions. So to give you just a quick flavor, as we learn what the proposed policy changes are, we will want to be careful that we look at both the city's request as well as the regional request. For example, if the request is to serve all of the city of Madison, does that also apply to our regional partners? So we will watch that carefully. Uh, I should say Nancy will watch that carefully, and we will use the opportunity to have the auditors there to be very clear on how that works. Thank you. Okay, other comments or questions? One final comment is I would like to uh, offer commendations to Nancy as a person that is, and Alder Rebecca also has been part of this. Before all of this went into effect, we <clears throat> put a lot of thought and press. It was, it was painful to figure out where to cut services and what to do with the money being diverted into family care. But with <clears throat> Nancy guiding Air Transit through it all, uh, we're still afloat. Yeah. And not only that, but uh, I think that we have 
retain more of the uh, agency fair revenue than I personally anticipated. And to make that clear, <clears throat> somebody who's not getting any kind of agency services, the ride spare transit, pays $3.25 for a ride. If you pay for an agency fare, it's $30. Mm -hmm. But we have people doing that <clears throat> because <clears throat> of the service standards of Metro instead of going to a, a subcontractor. And I think <clears throat> I just want to make sure Nancy understands that the commission gives us some credit for that. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Yes, absolutely, Chuck. And not only do I want to second Carl's but I want to look each of the commissioners in the eyes and thank you for your patience going through this because one of your roles mm -hmm. was to help us manage what we thought we had to do and some of the things we didn't do right away, and it turns out it was a good idea. So uh, let me, with some humility, say thank you. Yeah. We had a lot of discussion. We had a, a lot of potential service changes that caused people to be concerned. Yes. And you managed it so well with regard to working with the agencies that we were able to postpone and not implement those service changes that concerned people. So that was huge. And so thanks to you guys for doing that. And thank you, Carl, for that recognition. So I echo that as well. So other comments? Okay, so we'll look forward to hearing some more about this in the future. And it sounds, Rebecca, like um, if there's any policy uh, recommendations, they would come to the policy board, and you can let us know when that happens. Okay, any other comments or questions? Okay, thank you. Uh, and then, um, Ken, I think you had also asked uh, for uh, a report with regard to revenue sources and particularly with regard to Dane County. So, Chuck? Um, at the meeting where we were talking about some of our coordination with the county, we got into some questions about both the county funding and overall funding resources. So mm -hmm. we're going to give you a bit of both, see what questions you still have. We can bring back more information. So uh, Nancy has put on the screen our 2019 operating budget. That's in your packet. It briefly shows you out of our $57 million in anticipated revenues, where do we plan to get all of those from? Uh, you'll see that the number one source is the state of Wisconsin. The number two source is a close tie with uh, passenger fares. And then federal sources and other local governments add an important amount. It has been commented at the commission or before the Transit and Parking Commission how that other local segment, when you add it to the city of Madison, that adds up to about a third of our budget now. And out of that third, about 25% of that third comes from Fitchburg, Middleton, and our other partners, and the rest comes from the city. And that has grown as we have added service to Epic, Fitchburg, and, and Middleton. So uh, we show you that as the, the first chart to give you an overview of revenue sources. On the operating side, the next chart is in your packet and shows your capital budget because the council and staff prepare and the council approves a CIP plan. It doesn't move. I'll just talk through it. And Are they separate? Maybe if you go to the very top, to the where all those blue bars are at the top, you go to the one to the left. Oh, and if you, it was probably a different. 
We all have it. Yep. You got, you've got it. So I'll talk about it since you have it in your packet. Um, I think the thing to highlight there would be if, if 10 years ago you would have asked for this chart, you would quickly look at the pie chart, or maybe I do that because I really like pie charts and color-coded things, and you would say, oh, that's the federal local mix with the federal about 80%. It has flipped. That chart is 75% local funding and 25% federal funding. So that shows what a dramatic change in the last 10 years there has been A, in our increased infrastructure needs, but also in the limited role the federal government is playing in basic replacement infrastructure needs. So you see in the detailed chart, we break it out between buses, satellite facility, current facility. Uh, Tom Lynch has helped us very diligently in understanding how we cost those things out so that I feel that these numbers have gained some uh, solid backing uh, as questions are raised, and we will be talking to the state and the feds about these in the coming years. But that's the capital side. And then the final chart in your packet was the first direct question is, does the county help in other kinds of uh, services coordination? And the an short answer is yes. The long explanation, uh, or maybe not long, but a little bit more detail, Nancy perhaps can go through and explain how we work out these arrangements between the county and the city. Uh, right. These, these three programs, um, this is, this, what's represented here is the 2018 um, revenues, but, or Amounts, but these are not changed for 2019, although they're not yet approved. It's the same amounts. Um, we did get, uh, and, and these numbers are pretty consistent with what we've been getting over the last several years. Uh, there was a slight increase in one of the programs. I believe it was the group access program. There was a little more funding that came from Dane County, if I got that right. Uh, not a little. I mean, it was. I think it was in the in the area of about thirty thousand dollars more, and that was, um, as I recall, in recognition of the fact that we were going to be losing all of the uh, Dane County funds that were for the Medicaid program. What was the family care program? So they they put a little bit more our way, but basically what we're doing is um, the city is providing some aid um, to the county so to fund uh, transportation services and they in part um, send some funds back to us. So it's a little bit of an exchange and a sharing of, of costs and services. Dane County does provide the group access service and the uh, voluntary driver escort program and we deliver the seniors and persons with disabilities through our paratransit program. Jessica? I had a question on the capital budget. Um, the city sources are city borrowings. So can you help me understand how that is? Are those bonds issued by the city to support these capital projects or is it a borrowing by Metro from the city? And I guess what is what is the anticipated source of repayment given that our operating budget is also a mix of city funding and state funding? I guess what is the source of repayment of those borrowings? 
Good. Tom's still here. I'm going to do a general answer. <laughs> He's becoming intimately familiar with our debt service, mm. but it is the city that borrows funds. We don't borrow them from the city. Okay. And my general comment would just be, as we pay that back through debt service in our operating budget, we're also collecting money from Fitchburg, Middleton, and our partners. They do pay their share of a contribution to the, meeting our debt service requirements. But the city bonds and plays the role, if you will, as the banker and provides that uh, flow of funds for us to buy buses and do other infrastructure needs. But Tom might want to add some more. And then a quarter of that, need to that repayment is, is back from the city. Yes, yes. So it's... Um, so the borrowing is a capital cost, but the debt service, except for the principal, is an operating cost. Mm -hmm. And um, agencies like police, fire, traffic engineering, they're just considered regular agencies. And so the, the city borrows um, and pays those general obligation bonds. Okay? Because uh, there are certain... Um, City departments that are considered enterprise partners, uh, departments, uh, parking uh, is an example, uh, and metro is an example, because we cannot collect revenue. And so we are responsible for uh, the debt service. So uh, when you look at... Those are revenue bonds then, Tom? Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know. I've, I'm trying to figure out <coughs> revenue. I think they're yeah. general bonds. I think they're general obligation bonds, and they're, they, we typically have 10-year notes, yeah. and uh, we are exploring 20-year notes for some of the more major investments. So um, over the next five years, we'll have a considerable amount of capital costs. Typically, our capital costs right now have basically been in, in the form of buses, so we, we buy buses and um, we pay the debt service on buying those buses. Um, but we have, I think, this year $7 million for Phase 1. Next year we'll have $11 million for Phase um, 2. Then we have Phase 3 and Phase 4 and Phase 5, which all amount to about $57 million. Um, in the TIP right now, they have $30 million for a satellite facility, I think, in 2023 or 2024. But right now... You probably did. You see in the paper, um, mm -hmm. we're pursuing. Out of the bag. <laughs> yeah, we're pursuing purchase of Oscar Meyer, mm -hmm. okay? and so um, that, along with improvements to Oscar Meyer, uh, can range between 15 million and 19 million. And so all of these things are going to add considerably to um, Metro's operating budget. Right, because there are capital costs that results in debt service that is added to the operating budget, and so um, either the city will need to increase the allocation subsidy, however their contribution to Metro, or we might look at other revenue sources, um, you know, such as wheel taxes, or that's what Milwaukee does. Milwaukee, our regional transit authority would be a great thing if that ever got off the ground, um, those types of uh, revenue sources. Just looking at the pie chart, so if, if I get this right, the passenger fares is about a quarter of your revenue. You're talking about the operating budget. Uh, on the operating right. budget. Yep. 
So on the operating budget, what that really means to me is it that a $2 fare would otherwise be an $8 fare without all the other pie slices, right? I mean, if you were going to go out the city, the municipal, right. uh, the other local, yes. So it, 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 the operating cost is $8 per ride, and you still don't get replacement buses um, when those wear out. Is that about it? Well, you you kind of do. It, I'm just learning, well, wrapping my heads around this. Let's just go back without the, the comment about the you don't get the replacement buses. But it would otherwise be about $8 a ride as far as what the real cost is of the buses, right? Well, except you wouldn't provide the service to the other communities if they didn't pay, right? No, yeah. no, no. I'm not getting into the other other cities and all that other kind of thing. I'm saying what what in general is would would you have to charge if you were a private company without government subsidies? What would you have to charge for a fare in order to cover your bus replacement costs? Yeah, and, and all your other costs and, and things like that. Is it close to eight bucks? It's very, very high, but I would need someone to help me run those numbers. It's actually, uh, Chuck has told me that I'm just going to help Chuck re-remember some things he's told me. So he, <laughs> um, so he, he uh, while we charge two dollars uh, a ride per fare, many people have discounted fares, one way or the other. So if you were to average it out, our average cost per pair, I think it's right around a buck thirty. Okay, and uh, what? Buck thirty, I think. Yeah. Right around there. It's under a buck fifty. Yeah. So it's about a buck thirty if you average out discounted fares, all these different types of arrangements that we have with partners. And so <coughs> multiply that by four and maybe it'd be closer to six dollars. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you were to compare that, let's say with a shared ride service and actually, you're, we have the expert right here, right? Um, um, that would range from 20 to $30 um, a ride. And so while buses, you think of that, ride, that bus ride as having some expense, it's much cheaper than um, individual rides. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, um, on a separate note, that's why it's so challenging to provide uh, service to individual employers in the periphery because our subsidies – Federal and state do not change, and those are very high cost trips. They're important trips, you know what I mean? They're important trips, but it's. Um, yeah, the only reason I asked it is I sort of knew the answer, but I think, you know, it's not like we put banners on the side of buses saying this ride is only costing you about a quarter of what it costs to provide this ride. There's a. Whereas. In other things, when I operate my own car, after I think about what I pay at the gas station and what I pay for repairs and things like that, I have sort of a sense of what it costs me. But I think a lot of times the the people in the city don't un understand that amount. Yeah, but the, even you driving your car, there's hidden subsidies that are not oh, monetized. I'm just saying, yeah. Yeah, like, for instance... How much the road costs? We, the road, and we pay for the road um, of our general revenue, and then that road typically would have a rental cost, right? Property has a rental cost. So there's, we've just, we have built-in subsidies. So sometimes people um, have a, a misperception of the subsidies that are given to transit because they don't really understand 
the hidden subsidies that are given to just motor vehicle use. Yeah. That's how I was getting. So. so you're saying transit's not appreciated as much as it could be? No, I'm saying I think a lot of times, you know, I mean, I've sat in this community a lot of times, and we've had to do fears. We have to do a lot of things, and those are tough costs for people who are right. transit uh, dependent. Oh. But I think um, – it's sometimes helpful to have a little bit of information where people say, no, this is, um, there's a lot of other money that's coming in to help it make it as, as unaffordable as it is, you know, but, uh, it's not, it still is a costly item. If I could just add a couple things with the city's performance excellence system, we've been asked at the departments, oh, what do you hope? to come out of performance excellence. And one of my dreams is that there is a measure of how, if we get individuals to work, low income and others, as we help people to avoid buying a second or third car, as we help people get to medical appointments so they don't have to be institutionalized, what is the community return on investment, not just our fare box return on investment, because if we could measure that, if that was part of performance excellence, I think that would put public transportation in a new light rather than the old way of looking at what is your fare box return. Also emissions. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. I have a question, Chuck, on, on the uh, state of Wisconsin. Is that Are those dollars also from, like, the uh, the university? No, the state of Wisconsin is strictly the uh, Wisconsin Department of Transportation through their okay. uh, gas tax and other okay. fees. So, so the uh, so the University of Wisconsin payment for the Route 80 is under is under other local governments. Oh, other local governments. Yeah. Oh, okay. And it's other partners. That's really sometimes we say other partners. The earlier question on contractors, you could look at. Uh, does UW partner with us, or do they contract with it? I would describe it as a partnership because they're contributing the capital. They're very invested in our service. It's different. So that other local perhaps should say other local partners. Other said other local government. Right. Other partners. Okay. Other comments. Great information. It, it helps. Um, like our key transportation topics, it helps provide us with information so we're in a better position to make decisions going forward. So, great. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Next we have subcommittee reports. Um, Gary Polson's not here. He's the chair of our special rules subcommittee. So, uh, Rebecca and I are on that. I'll just give a brief update and ask Rebecca for anything else. Uh, So, we had a meeting yesterday. Uh, Took us a while to find a date, but we did. Uh, We had a very productive meeting. Uh, We basically created an outline for the Transportation Commission handbook, the orientation handbook that we've been talking about. And we got assignments, and uh, all figured it would take us a few weeks to work on those assignments and and put a draft together. So uh, tentatively, we're looking at March 18th, I think, to get back together again. Uh, so that uh, we can continue working on that with our with our goal to you know over the course of the next few months to have um, a, a product to bring back to this group uh, for review and uh, and approval. So Rebecca, that's about it. Okay, great. Um, and.
And, Ken, did you want to talk about, um, and Bill and Rebecca, you were there as well, the Taxi Permit Denial Appeal Subcommittee? Sure. On Monday, uh, we held the first um, appeal hearing in probably four years or so. Um, the applicant had uh, applied uh, for a taxi permit. Um, along with the application, he had sort of an endorsement from one of the cab companies that they would hire him. Uh, the concern that the more, that the police department had was that, uh, this particular person had, uh, a lengthy, um, criminal record, um, nothing having to do with violence towards person or, uh, anything like that. It was a theft record sort of related to an addiction issue. The person had served, if I recall, close to six years uh, in institutional time so um, and is now out on parole, really called extent, uh, extended supervision. His agent was aware of the application and had not objected to it. Um, we reviewed his testimony as well as the testimony of um, Captain Cheney Austin, and we determined that it was uh, appropriate for him to receive uh, a permit. Um, we asked that he ask his agent to notify uh, the police department that the agent was aware that we had made that decision, and um, that's it. Anything to contribute? I, I think... The reason for the denial uh, by the uh, Madison Police Department was they followed the ordinance, mm. and that that I see it as their job. They followed the ordinance as far as checking on the record of the individual, which he he met the uh, criteria for denial, okay. which theft of property. And uh, on the other hand, then. It was our job then to listen to that appeal, yes, that we could read into it besides just the ordinance mm -hmm. of those things for denial. And I, I think that's why it made sense for the, for the uh, appeal to move forward. And I, I, I think, you know, thinking about it the last two days, I'm more comfortable, you know, that the process worked. Yeah, yeah I think it's, there's a reason why there's a process. And this case exemplifies, you know, Kind of why, mm -hmm. um, why people should be given a more a, a deeper look, <laughs> and um, it worked. I think uh, so. Yeah. yeah, I think the thing you know, oftentimes is the for me it's um, what's remarkable here. And I've been on this committee for a long time and have done all these appeals. Um, like I said, this is the first one in four or five years uh, where we've had an appeal, which means that there's been a lot of people who have applied for a taxi permit, I'm assuming, in those last 60 months. And for whatever reason, I can't imagine that the police department has approved all of them, but for whatever reason, that has gone without an appeal uh, for a long period of time. So what's what should be noted here is the process works pretty right. well if we're only getting it yeah. now, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was a question I had though: who who begins the appeal process, or who I guess advocates on <coughs> behalf of a person to make them yeah. aware of the, 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 oh, the, he's, he's the applicant? Okay. The applicant, yeah, yeah. 
When he is denied. When they're denied, they're notified of their right. Okay. Right. So the applicant is told that he has the ability to be a representative in order to appeal. He has that choice. He has that choice. Okay. In yeah. his case, he didn't. And I believe he's told he has that choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so what I'm getting at is that most of the time when it's appealed or when it's denied, there is probably a pretty good communication as far as here's our reason why. And I don't think it's intimidation. I think it's just that the person says, oh, I get it. You're applying the rules and there's not any reason to file an appeal because I can see what you're, we're getting at. So. Yeah. And on this appellant, um, he represented himself extremely well and really exemplified in that quality of that representation why uh, his his case. Um, so yeah, I mean, good rules and good process. So yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I would have no recommendation to change the ordinance either. Yeah. No. No. Well, it sounds like it works. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Any other comments on either of the subcommittees? Okay, great. We had reports from other committees. I think we had a crossover report last time, mm -hmm. so we'll defer till next time. Uh, announcements and future agenda items. I don't have any other announcements because I already mentioned about ASH. Um, anybody have any other items uh, for future agendas? We've had a couple that were noted today, and I'll add them to, to Patrick and I keep lists of things that uh, we have for ideas or things that need to come in the future. Anything else? Yeah, I just want to make a comment. So uh, Rebecca and Bill and I went on a tour over on mm -hmm. Sales Street today. Yeah. Okay. A wonderful tour. Yeah. And, you know, my takeaway from that is that um, there's all these things that are going on by dedicated people. I mean, some of the people have been employed there since the 80s and things like that to make stuff work. <laughs> you know, whether it's a parking, you know, when, when I go and I, I put my credit card in, that the parking thing functions, that the signs function, that the traffic lights function, that the police officer can communicate um, to other people and things like that. All these things that are like almost invisible yeah. um, that you take for granted um, that the shop on Sales Street mm -hmm. and other places as well. And it just reminded me that, okay, this is that this little bit of the transportation yeah. aspect of it. But there's all these other parts, you know, that we similarly are hidden. You know, sewerage leaves my house. <laughs> every day, you know, and I take it for granted. You know, I don't even think about it until there... There is something, and so having the really the privilege as a commission member to take these tours and to see how things function and to see the people that make all these things happen um, yeah. is really a privilege. Yeah, that infrastructure is oftentimes invisible and taken for granted, isn't it? So uh, it's it's great. I'm sorry I wasn't at the last minute able to come, and um, so potentially at another time. And we are talking about this being the first phase of a tour, and we wanted to set up a second tour when the weather's better to, you know, maybe see some of the garages and some of the other things that uh, we talked about. So some of the facilities in the field. Mm -hmm. Weather is better. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and I think that's part of the whole orientation 
guide that we talked about is to encourage people to take tours. I mean, I remember as a new TPC member how grateful I was to spend the time that I did out at Metro because I I really learned a lot and it it made me a better person in terms of making decisions on the commission because I had that Yeah. A lot more uh, common sense. It makes it understandable as far as what's going on behind the scenes. But yeah. how our city works really how it comes together. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for that for the tour and for offering it. It sounds like it was very well received. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry for our very informal. Uh, and I hope you know that they didn't get intimidated by us. But I mean, I, I we didn't want them to. Yeah. They were very open and answered all our questions. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Sorry that uh, you know we cannot make time work for everyone. Sure. So we can think about uh, setting another time. So uh, yeah. get other folks uh, the chance to visit the shop as well. So we can we can talk about that. I'm looking forward to the Oscar Mayer Garage tour. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. So any, anything else for future agenda items? Move to adjourn. Okay. There's a motion to adjourn. A second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carried. Thanks, everybody.